are listening to Lockdown Chats with City of London Symphonia, featuring Alexandra Wood in conversation with Genevieve Lacey. Hello and welcome. Thank you all for listening. I'm Alexandra. I'm the leader and creative director of the City of London Symphonia. And today I have a very special guest all the way from Australia. I'm quite excited to be talking to someone in Australia. Um, It is the recorder queen. I hope you don't mind me calling you that. The recorder queen that is Genevieve Lacey. Genevieve, thank you for joining me. Oh, Alex, it's such a pleasure. It's so lovely to have a chat. It's brought such a rush of memories. Indeed, indeed, because it was just over a year ago that we worked with you and it was the first of our Absolute Bird series concerts at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. And exactly, it's brought back so many memories for me, um, not only of your amazing playing and not only the kind of joyful collaboration that it was, but actually Mm. the most vivid memory I have, it's, it's a little strange, is of someone coming onto the stage with a huge tray, jam-packed full of different sorts of recorders. That's what stays with me in my mind, this, this massive tray. I wonder, how do you know how many different sorts of recorders you actually play? Oh, uh, look, I, I have a whole, I have a cupboard full of them here, Alex. Do you really? <laughs> I do. And, and I, think, I think my official answer is that I have about 25 really beautiful instruments. Um, because I play at different pitches depending on what the context is. So sometimes I'm in a Baroque world, sometimes I'm in a medieval Renaissance world, but most of the time nowadays I'm in a contemporary world. So different pitches but also different sizes because my instrument's not like yours where you can, I don't know, sometimes I have to confess I have violin envy. Um, In fact, I envy many instruments for their extraordinary repertoire but also for their expressive ability and I would certainly say that my instrument's deeply expressive, but the the range of one recorder is about two octaves. Mm-hmm. And while you can play many beautiful tunes with two octaves, um, you can also amplify that by playing multiple different recorders across a piece, which means suddenly you have the kind of range of, of a piano or a violin. And, and for composers, that's very beguiling. And for mm-hmm. players too, because suddenly you can draw out all these different colours and characters, which is really exciting. Wonderful. I mean, for me, I think the hearing someone play the recorder as amazingly and virtuosically as you do is even more of a revelation because, I mean, I don't know over in Australia, but here in England, certainly most school children are given a recorder at some point and it sounds dreadful. So to hear it played amazingly is just wonderful and and you're sort of the astonishment of these amazing sounds coming out of this instrument how did you start was it a school thing or I mean how how did you get on that recorder recorder Mm. wagon and collect your 24 recorders you know well I guess firstly I'd say that I feel that that's the great um privilege of my life as a recorder player in that whenever you walk the stage or anyone who plays a violin or who plays a cello or a piano or who sings that comes with a whole lot of expectations and you as one of those people have to strive to meet them and certainly historically I have a great line of ancestors musically who have been extraordinary recorder players but for most people when I walk onto stage they expect nothing or at least very little 
And so I'm in the incredibly fortunate position of being able to literally transform people's understanding what an instrument can do. And not everyone has that joy. Um, so that makes me very fortunate, I reckon. Um, but to answer your question about when I started and whether I played at school, I started when I was really little and in my family we can't quite work it out whether I was perhaps four or maybe five. But I had a slightly unusual childhood in that I grew up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. So we lived in a little tiny village um, way up in the mountains and my older brother, who was my best friend and my hero, decided that he really wanted to play a musical instrument. And my parents are great music lovers and we grew up in a family where we listened to music a great deal, but they never had the good fortune of being able to learn music. And the combination of their, um, their love for music and my brother's insistence that he wanted to play an instrument, I suppose, led our whole family down a path. So as you would not be so surprised to hear, um, growing up in the highlands of New Guinea, there weren't a whole lot of um, Western instruments immediately to hand. Mm -hmm. um, but there, and then particularly when we moved down to Port Moresby, the capital city, we were able to get hold of recorders and there was a whole recorder playing community there. So I started when I was little um, in the footsteps of my beloved brother. And because of that place and time, school music was not a thing there. So I didn't actually learn the recorder in a classroom en masse. Whereas if I'd grown up at my age, at that moment in history in Australia, I certainly wouldn't would have done that just as, oh. as you would in English. So in a strange way, many people have joked, but I actually think there's some truth in it. The fact that I missed that maybe helped me to keep going with the recorder because I didn't ever have that experience. Um, but also, I suppose, like any child who then displays an aptitude on the recorder, people encourage you to play proper instruments. So I did play proper instruments. Oh, really? Um, oh, yeah. So what, what do you play? Yeah. So by the time we, um, by the time I was eight, we moved to Australia um, and there I started playing the piano. Um, and then when I moved to high school, I started playing the oboe. And I was really serious about both those instruments. And when I went through the conservatorium in Australia, I went through as an oboist as well as really actually, I went through primarily as an oboist because um, I was able to convince them that I could do recorder as, a, an, as an equal principle. We struck a deal, basically. I said, okay, well, I will play first oboe in the orchestra as long as I can have recorder lessons as well. So by that stage, I wasn't playing the piano sort of formally anymore. Um, but, yeah, right through my life, it's been very much the case that people have said, look, you seem to be really quite musical. You should play a proper instrument. But for whatever reason, I've, um, I've resisted, Alex. No, no, I mean, the recorder is more than a proper instrument, and particularly the way you play it, Genevieve. Um, I wonder, I mean, though, playing the oboe as well obviously opened up a whole um, door onto other repertoire, sort of orchestral repertoire and other chamber music, yeah. but perhaps if you had sort of um, just stayed with recorder, you might not have had the chance to encounter. So as a musician, what did you find that useful, even though you, oh. I mean, do you still play the oboe or, or not really anymore? No, I don't still play the oboe because the oboe is, um, well, I guess if I, I were to use a stern word, I would say it's very unforgiving in that if I don't play it regularly, my embouchure simply won't hold. 
um, whereas other instruments can allow you to sort of dip in and out in, in a gentler way and the oboe is really not like that. So, no, I don't play the oboe anymore, but I love that instrument. I think it's an extraordinary instrument. And, yeah, the experience of playing the oboe and all that beautiful orchestral repertoire and the experience of sitting inside an orchestra and playing that kind of chamber music. And also as a pianist, not like still, I sit to play the piano semi-regularly. Like I, I love, it's like a miracle when you play a melody instrument to be able to accompany yourself and play harmonies. So I think both those things were incredibly formative for me as a musician. But I guess I felt really early and certainly, yeah, right through my life that there's an ease with me and the recorder that I didn't ever feel with the oboe or the piano, much as I love those instruments and and the worlds that they unlock. Um, they were not so natural for me, whereas I always felt that I could um, play the recorder is a bit like breathing, you know, it just, it feels like it's my voice. So it was kind of a choice that wasn't a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Now, one of the things I loved about the concert that we did with you uh, just over a year ago was this eclectic mix of mm. um, repertoire. You curated the program and mm. we had Vivaldi alongside Hollis Taylor. Mm. I was I was wondering whether when you create programs, you like to create that juxtaposition of different styles to almost sort of shock or freshen people's ears in the audience, or whether it's just something that naturally occurs from the theme that you might choose. Because you, I know that you do like to have a sort of umbrella of a theme very often to bind your pieces together. Mm. So yeah, if you can explain a little bit about how you know how you program in that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, um, I tend to think about the idea first. What, what, what's the concept or what's the feeling or what's the world that I like to conjure up musically and what's the, what's the beautiful experience that I hope to invite listeners into? And then from that, the repertoire emerges. Um, so I don't generally start with I want to play pieces A, B and C and then how on earth am I going to make that work? It's much more what do I want the listening experience to be? What do I want the emotional experience to be? And sometimes there's a central piece or two pieces that somehow unlock that idea for me. Um, so definitely repertoire goes hand in hand with sort of bigger thematic ideas. But I suppose the other thing is that as a recorder player, the idea of playing old music along new side music, uh, alongside new music, that um, that to us is as natural as walking. Like that's what our instrument does. And it's a very particular history in that it's an instrument that flourished, you know, through medieval Renaissance Baroque times and then went quiet for a period and didn't reappear until the 20th century. But when you grow up in the recorder repertoire world, your whole life is about putting new music alongside old music. And there's something about, I want to use the word austerity or purity about those two very different periods in music history that always to me seem like they have quite a natural affinity. Mm -hmm. Once you start diving into 
the later 18th century and certainly the 19th and early 20th century. To me, it's natural that my instrument didn't fit there and didn't flourish there. Mm. My instrument is is by by design and certainly for me by intention. It it thrives in the world of the miniature and the intimate and the exquisite. And as soon as you get into that world of landscape and lushness, mm-hmm. um, the instrument literally doesn't make sense in a very acoustic, basic acoustic way. So I suppose my natural habitat as a player is both the very early and the very new. So for me, putting those two things together is not at all about shocking. It's just like, well, of course they go together. They've always mm-hmm. gone together. So it's, it can, a, it's a particular perspective on music history. It can be quite refreshing for us um, as, as a chamber orchestra or, or as chamber players because um, it, it can feel at the moment like there are certain areas that you should specialise in. So you, you, I mean, there are obviously lots of contemporary music groups and there are lots mm. of um, Baroque or classical groups. Mm. Um, so it, it feels quite liberating to be mm. able to put the two together um, and you're right, there's a, a freshness about mm. both ends of the spectrum, as it were, mm. which um, they do work really, really well together. Mm. Um, so that, for us, I know in that concert, it felt it felt right and it, it felt lovely to be able to mm. play Rebel or Vivaldi and then mm. play a, a new commission. Mm. Yeah, I think um, freshness is a great word and there's a sort of a clarity about... Um, the sound world of both those ends of the spectrum that seems to marry really well together. And, and look, I, I have huge respect for specialists. I, I've spent a lot of time um, with people who have given their life to the pursuit of early music and, and historically informed performance practice. And I've also spent a lot of my time with people who've given their life to really pioneering experimental contemporary sounds. So... I have huge respect for the idea of musical dialects and I think it takes a lot of time and and care and sensitivity to, to sort of really immerse yourself in different musical languages. But ultimately, I suppose I'm more interested in, in ideas and, and in audience experiences and I think, I think with care um, you can actually traverse those those centuries almost alarmingly easily. Mm. And I think for an audience too, there's there's real enchantment in that as well as liberation in that, the sense that there are some things about being human that can speak to many of us in many different contexts and, and there's something deeply um, affirming about that, I think. Mm. So with the new music, obviously, you've commissioned many fabulous composers. Can you tell us something a little bit about that process and how how it might unfold for you and also what you enjoy most about it, about working Mm. with composers Mm. on on a new work of art, really? Mm. Yeah, well, the process differs hugely from person to person because different composers like to work in different ways. and I really like to work in a way that suits the composer. So some of the most extraordinary pieces that have been written for me and my instrument have um, come out of someone's, I would say, almost pure imagination. So people who, you know, I've given them some fundamental facts about what the range of the instrument is and how it normally is notated, but then they've just completely followed 
their own ears and their own imagination and produce something that you look at and you just think, oh, how extraordinary. Whereas other people like to work extremely collaboratively and lot to, like to have lots of conversations and lots of workshops about, you know, can you give me a whole array of scores and recordings of pieces that you love? Can I write you a sketch for something? And then we talk about it. How do certain contemporary techniques work on your instrument? So it really depends on on how the individual creative person likes to work in terms of how that unfolds. And then I suppose the question about what I like about that process is the, well, oh, there are so many things I like about it. It's, I think it's such an extraordinary privilege to work alongside composers. Like most of the composers I know are some of the most extraordinary thinkers that I've ever encountered. And so to be able to be close to that kind of intellect and rigour and imagination is, is such a joy. But then also I feel like I have a huge, um, I have a, a great love for my instrument and the idea of trying to work alongside the most brilliant creative minds of our time in order to give my instrument a future mm -hmm. is something that really not only inspires me but is really important to me. Because much as I love and revere in many ways the music of the past, I'm very passionate about listening to now and trying to help somehow be some kind of conduit or facilitator or assistant in uh, bringing to life the stories and the voices of this time and this place. So there's something about that philosophically that really is is really central to me. Life is a little bit up in the air at the moment, obviously. We're not sure quite um, how music making is going to progress. I mean, certainly here, I'm not sure so much in Australia, but I wonder what projects you've got coming up that you're particularly excited about, um, if you can share those with us, or even since we last saw you, if you've had any particularly special projects that you can um, enlighten us with. Yeah, I guess I've been thinking a huge amount lately about um, how we can continue to do our work in in different environments, as of course we have all been right around the world. And I've loved how generous musicians and creative people have been. I've loved our collective need to communicate, to to connect people through sound um, and that feels like it's been such an outpouring across the world that's taken so many different forms. It's been very moving I think as well as very uplifting to see that sort of deep need in the human spirit. I guess I've been thinking a lot about the fact that certainly here in Australia and it feels like in quite a lot of places the arts and music have been seen as non-essential services. Mm. And yet what people have reached for in this time of, for many, terrible pain and loss and suffering and huge uncertainty is song and story and picture and ways of connecting 
with one another as fellow human beings and ways of making sense of where we are, often certainly as musicians in ways that words simply cannot. Mm. And I suppose I've been thinking a lot about how we as a community might more and more embed our work in our own communities so that collectively people do experience and understand that human expression through arts and culture is is not decorative. It's actually absolutely fundamental to who we are as a species. Mm. And I know that sounds kind of really lofty, but I, I think the gap between um, these kind of lines between what's essential and what's not and human behaviour has shown to be huge. The way that humans are behaving is showing us that we have such a deep need to connect and to express. So I guess I've been thinking a lot about what projects can amplify that, what projects can take the skills and the sensibilities that I and that many of my colleagues have into all sorts of environments in order that we can facilitate that in ways that give people meaning and hope and solace and joy and a sense of belonging to something that's bigger than themselves. Wow. That's an amazing uh, sentiment on which, on which to end, Genevieve. It really is. It's a beautiful thought. Um, and I think you're so right that actually it's at times like this that art and nature and all these things that perhaps we take for granted become even more important and they're so much part of us as human beings mm. and let's hope that we all can I mean I know on, on a very practical level that the orchestra hope very much to work with you again in the future that's certainly in the planning um I would so, love that. yeah we really really want to welcome that. you again um but thank you for joining me today thank you for giving up your time it's been a great pleasure talking to you and yeah I hope that we see each other very very soon Thank, Thank you, Ali. Thank and you. To you too. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs>